Well, again, I am so glad to see you tonight. I'm, I'm glad to be able to have just a few weeks to lead out in a series that I've called Imago Day. Now someone says, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, what kind of language is that? It's simply Latin shorthand for image of God. And that's what that means, and it's referring to a very specific theological truth that we see in Scripture from the earliest pages of Scripture, um, in particular as it relates to humanity and how man, I say man, men and women, humanity, have both been uniquely created in the image of God. Now I know that that's something that you've heard, it's something you've read, but it may never have been something that you've actually thought about you know, in depth uh, or have, have studied. And with all that's going on in our, our culture around us, if ever there's been a time for really a renewed emphasis on what it means for men and women to be made in the image of God, that time is now. And so this is very, very important for us as the church so that we can articulate that, so that we can defend our faith, share our faith. Because what you see happening right now in our culture really is it's two competing visions for humanity. There is the vision which is nothing more than just uh, neo-paganism. It's paganism revived in, in Western civilization. For the vast majority of Western civilization, we've you know, experienced the, uh, the, the Judeo-Christian ethic, which really served as the underpinning, the framework for our understanding of man's place in the universe. Well, out of that now, in a rejection of that worldview, uh, there are old pagan ideas which simply have come back around. And so that's why it's important for us to understand that the Christian vision for humanity, the Judeo-Christian ethic that we see uh, explained in the scriptures, folks, there is nothing like it in the history of ideas. And it will totally lead to the transformation of lives and the transformation of civilization. But you know the enemy, he wants to... Uh, distort all of that uh, and keep people in the dark. Now, you should have had a, a study guide. I don't know if I printed enough of these tonight, but uh, you can, if you don't have one of these study guides, maybe you can get a napkin or something, you know, and just write some notes down. But I will say this, there's no guarantees that I'm even going to get through all of this tonight anyway. So if you didn't get a study guide, don't worry about it. You're not going to be left out, okay? Uh, if you do have your Bible, you can just turn with me tonight to the very first chapter of the Bible. Where in just a few moments, uh, we'll begin looking at uh, verses 26, 27, and 28. But as you are turning there, and you know, as we just sort of begin this little study, you know, I want to just sort of begin with this question. What exactly does it mean to be human? Now, at first glance, that seems like a very, very simple question. You know, but think about it. What does it mean to be a human being? Uh, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And, and, and think about that for just a moment. How might you really answer that question? Say you're having conversation with someone that you work with. Or say you're having conversation with uh, one of your children or one of your grandchildren about just basic, fundamental issues of life, what does it mean to be a human being, what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman? These very questions, remarkably, are being answered very differently in our time compared to what you and I are accustomed to as far as a Christian background is concerned. But there are multiple answers often to that question in today's culture, depending on who you ask. A few years ago, 2017, uh, BBC Earth launched a series of episodes that really explored the subject of humanity. And in their promotional piece, here's what they wrote. What is a human being? This is a question that we've been asking for thousands of years. Priests and poets, philosophers and politicians, scientists and artists have all sought to answer this ultimate puzzle but ultimately fell short, never able to fully capture the vastness of the human experience. Now, they were going to air a series on, on the BBC, you know, exploring this issue, what does it mean to be a human, and to give you a clue as to how they went about their search, 
uh, in that article, they went on to say this. Some have come closer to the answer than others. For example, Charles Darwin had one of the greatest insights into the human condition that any of our species has ever had. Changing thousands of years of thought with the stroke of a pen, yet had nothing to say about how we actually experience being human. It'd be another 50 years before an Austrian doctor began to talk about the hidden forces of the subconscious mind, but even Sigmund Freud could not provide adequate explanation for consciousness. In fact, to date, no one has come close to describe the sheer magnificent wonder of what it means to truly be alive. The electric surge that we feel whenever we kiss a lover, the deep stirring of the soul when we listen to Mozart, if you're into that kind of thing, I guess. The full-flowing joy of laughing uncontrollably with our closest friends as we share a joke. And so on and on they go in the article to talk about their series that they're going to air, which aired in 2017. And so listen to this. Here's, here's where they end up. So what is our story? Let's start with the facts. We are one species of primate that emerged from the dry savannas of East Africa just over 100,000 years ago and began a migration that continues to this day. <laughs> we weren't the strongest animal, but we had unusually large brains and held ourselves upright, giving us a high vantage to scan the distant horizon for enemies and so on and so forth. 12,000 years ago, we learned how to domesticate plants and other animals for food and were able to settle in one place. We became a social animal, building complex communities that become kingdoms, learning to trade with each other using a concept uh, known as money. And basically, they make the statement in this article that man has become a god in his own world, and yet they leave us in, in just this complete confusion as to where did it all originate to begin with. And so that's a fundamentally different answer for what it means to be a human than the one that we find in the opening chapters of the Bible, isn't it? And it's really a hopeless kind of a thing. Uh, because I want to ask this question. As human beings, what is it that really gives us a sense of dignity and value to begin with? Because the fact of the matter is, we can't put a finger on it apart from God's revelation. There's no sufficient answer. And if you follow the evolutionary claims to their logical conclusion, then listen, what that means is you have absolutely no basis whatsoever to uphold human dignity and value and the worth of a human being. And so sadly, the BBC, they were totally lost and in the dark from the start. Because without the knowledge of the Creator, we're completely left in the dark as to this issue. What exactly does it mean to be human? There's a theologian by the name of Eric Thames who said that there's not a single issue in the news today that's not profoundly shaped by one's definition of humanity. By the way, just think about how that sort of impacts what's going on, you know, in the Middle East. You know, and, and when we talk about, you know, certain things that are permissible in war and are not permissible in war. And there's a certain level of humanitarian expectation uh, in the treatment of even one's enemies. Where does all of that come from? You know, how do you even begin to explain the, 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 the basic dignity of another person if you don't have an understanding of who you are in terms of your creator? So a person's definition of a human being is at the heart of his views on politics, economics, parenting, education, gender, bioethics, and on down the line. And Thane says this, there's a desperate need for Christians to have a clear, comprehensive, biblically grounded, God-centered definition of humanity and for that definition to transform the way that we live, love, and serve others. All right, and so in our secular age, we've been told really that human beings are nothing more than than the result of, of chance and impersonal forces that have been sort of uh, you know, pushing their way through the universe over the course of time. So that secular society would say there is no divine origin behind our existence, there's no ultimate design even to our bodies and our identities, and there's no God to whom we owe our existence. 
And so we're not made by God. We have no greater purpose beyond self-existence. The only thing that matters is, you know, what's right there in front of you, the material world itself. But, you know, the thing is, against that kind of bleak, hopeless outlook on life and, and humanity, I'm so thankful that the Bible sheds a much-needed ray of light into our situation. I mean, think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139. You, Lord, formed my inward parts. There's not a part of me that God is not somehow uh, involved in as far as the creation of myself is concerned. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And the psalmist says, wonderful are your works. And this is something that my soul knows quite well. So that even within your own soul, the stamp of the creator who's made you in his image, you know deep down that there is a God and that you are accountable to this God and you've been created in the image of this God. All right. So the fact of the matter is we will only understand who we are when we understand who God is and what he says about us. Okay, and beyond that, we're going to be left in the dark. We're creatures, and it's our creator who defines us. And God the creator, he defines who I am, who you are. And since that's true, we should really try to understand what exactly it is that, that he says about us. And I'm going to recommend some resources that, you know, I've sort of I mentioned Sunday that I had just read some uh, resources over the course of the summer that have sort of been... Um, Helpful. I want to recommend some of these. Now, listen, I know some of y'all are readers and some of y'all are not. Okay? But I will say this. I really believe with all of my heart that in, in view of what we're dealing with as a church in today's cultural climate, uh, we can't be satisfied with business as usual as the people of God. You know, the, there's a verse in the book of Daniel that says the people who know their God will remain firm and take action. And so now is the time for us to really seek to know God and what his word has to say and to think through some of these very, very important uh, issues. And how is the Christian going to respond, you know, to the, the rise of you know, the transgender movement? And where it's become so popular and even moral and good by today's understanding for a person to wrap their identity up in, in their sexual proclivities. How are we going to respond to that? Because let me just be honest. All of us probably have someone in our families, our extended families, our, our close circle of friends who are seeing these issues very differently than you and I. And some of you perhaps have children and grandchildren who are wrestling with some of these issues in their own life. Maybe they've gotten caught up in the cultural movement of the time and they're allowing the culture to inform their understanding about gender and sexuality more so than, than God and his word and thousands of years of, of Christian theology and tradition. And so how do we respond to that? Well, I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to read. We need to pray. We need to have conversations with each other. And so some of these books that I would recommend to you if you want to just jot the titles down, you can get these or not, that's fine, you know, but uh, one is um, called Affirming God's Image by J. Allen Branch, and he is a professor of Christian ethics at Midwestern Seminary in, in Kansas City, and, and this is a tremendous little book that deals with the transgender issue with both science and scripture, and, and his name is J. Allen Branch, okay, and I'll, these will be up here if you just want to kind of come by this evening and, and, and Write the titles down, and I'll have these every Wednesday night. Um, and then there's another by Christopher Yen. This one's been around for a while. Rosaria Butterfield, if you're familiar with her, she wrote the foreword to this book. But it's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. And uh, there was a time in his life when he identified as homosexual. And he was converted to Christ, and so now he is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. And uh, he's written this book, which is tremendous. It's on sex, desire, and relationships shaped by God's grand story. Christopher Yen, and it's spelled Y-U-A-N, his last name. I mentioned Rosaria Butterfield, but she's written a book called The Five Lies of Our Secular Age. 
And she too has a similar testimony. Uh, She was a lesbian um, feminist professor of queer studies at Syracuse University. But guess what happened? The grace of God got a hold of her life. And the Lord saved her, changed her through just the faithful witness of a pastor and his wife. And so now she's actually married to a pastor in Durham, and she's written several books. And this one is brilliant, Five Lives of Our Anti-Christian Age, Rosaria Butterfield. She deals with the issue of, of gender and, uh, and, and, and that kind of thing. Nancy Piercy, many of you are familiar with Nancy Piercy. The book Total Truth was a great book that she wrote. But this is called Love Thy Body, and it's just a treatment on, on life and sexuality from a biblical perspective. And in this book, she also deals with issues of transgenderism and homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia. And uh, she actually makes the case that the view of the body, there's been, you know, renewed pagan emphasis on our understanding of the human body, where that now there's sort of this this disconnect and this dichotomy between who the personhood and, and one's body That is, your personhood is different from your body, which means you can just do whatever you want to with your body. Now, we know that that's not what the Bible teaches. All right, because there's an integrity, there's a wholeness there. You are an embodied soul. And the Bible teaches us, we know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Dr. Moeller at Southern Seminary wrote a book just two or three years ago called The Gathering Storm, and he sort of deals with just sort of a, a lot of these issues, uh, sort of a broad sweep, and so uh, that's, that's one that I would really recommend to you, secular, secularism, culture, and the church. Uh, Al Moeller, Dr. Al Moeller. And then Reenchanting Humanity is another great book. This is on the doctrine of humanity specifically what it means to be made in the image of God. And this has been a very, very helpful resource uh, by Owen Strahan. All right, so again, all of these are going to be up here. You can come by and you can uh, write the titles down, maybe take a picture of it or whatever, if you're really interested in wanting to read more on these issues. All right? So just diving right in into this subject, Stephen Wellam, who again, he's a theology professor, but he says that... um, The sad irony of our current context is that in seeking to dethrone the glorious triune God from the center of our thinking, worship, and obedience, we've lost the meaning of who we are as humans and the very reason for our existence. And so he goes on to say that God's quote-unquote death in our culture has now led to our death as well. So that, as a consequence, we're now reaping the whirlwind in every aspect of what it means to be human. We no longer know why human beings have value and dignity. We have no reason to value our work and to truly live. What God created good and beautiful in human sexuality, marriage, and the family, we've turned to ashes. I'll tell you what we've done is we've just bought into the lies of the evil one who does want to corrupt at every level uh, God's design and prevent human flourishing to take place. Now, you know, in the Genesis account there, I had you turn to Genesis 1, on the sixth day of creation, the Bible says that God created man and woman in his own image. So that as you follow the timeline in the day-by-day account of creation, God has spoken the universe into existence. He's he's, he's created the, the, the cosmos... He's brought order out of chaos, and the crowning point of his creation, if you get to verse number 26 there, let's read it together. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
Now let's just read on to the end of the chapter. Verse 29, God says, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And so you get to the end of the chapter, verse 31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was what? It was very good. Now, prior to that point, at the close of every day and creative act of God, he describes it as being good. But now, now that he's created man and woman in his own image, here you have the crowning point of creation, and God has given to the man and the woman dominion, And as his image bearers, they're to reflect his glory throughout the earth. They're to be fruitful. They're to multiply. They're to exercise dominion over the created order. God looks at that and he says, there's something about that that is very good. Tov is the Hebrew word translated good. But here it's it's mahod tov, which means exceedingly, abundantly good. And, And that's God's design For human flourishing. That's God's intention behind creation itself. And you think about how that's very different from what we're witnessing in our own time in terms of these two competing visions for humanity, the one offered by biblical Christianity, the one offered by neo-paganism. But listen, Jesus said that wisdom is justified by our children. Look at where those competing visions ultimately lead. In light of our newfound freedom as a society and all of our our loosened moral restraints, can we say that society is any better for it? (laughs) No. Not in terms of so much of our increasing lawlessness and cruelty, and we would even say injustice. Why is that? Because let me tell you something. That's what the enemy really wants to, 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 to produce within hum, humanity. He is an agent of chaos. And Genesis 1 presents this beautiful picture, this order of cosmos, order, design, purpose, and yet the evil one wants to undo that very design. And that's where sin leads, by the way. Sin always results in chaotic breakdown, both in terms of our own individual lives Uh, It leads to chaos and breakdown in the home, in the marriage relationship. It leads to breakdown ultimately even in society itself. Now the thing is, I'm glad that God went to work. And even before creation itself, there was an eternal plan where God would redeem humanity. And he would would, uh, send his own son in the likeness of men who would suffer for our sin and our law-breaking ways and who would die for our sin and, and, and be risen from the grave. And now there is redemption in Jesus Christ so that we can pursue God's original design once more in Jesus Christ. But the thing is, folks, it's only an understanding that we've been created in God's image that's really able to give us a sense of our dignity, both as human beings uh, who are responsible to each other and ultimately responsible to God. Which, by the way, this is... This is fundamental when you think about the two important commandments that Jesus said. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. What does he say the greatest thing that a person can do is? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And then he says the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now you think about the world of 8 billion people, where sin not in the picture. And you had 8 billion people who were loving the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and they were loving their neighbor as they would love themselves. What type of environment do you think planet Earth would consist of? Because listen, let me tell you, that's God's ultimate ideal. And that's what he's going to do in terms of his complete redemptive plan. We, we spent time in Revelation 
And we work through some of those particulars and hard details, and there's a lot that we don't know, and there's a lot that we can't be dogmatic about. But one thing we know with certainty is that Jesus Christ, when he comes and he establishes righteousness in the new heaven and the new earth, and the redeemed people are with him for all eternity to come, that's what we've got to look forward to. A world where there is no more sin and confusion and chaos and death and mayhem and destruction. And so thank God for this divine design. So what God has originally designed in Genesis 1 and 2, we see it messed up by sin come Genesis 3. We now live in a Genesis 3 world, but God has done all that's necessary in Christ. And so man's place then in the created order, it's defined by this fact that we're made in the image and in the likeness of God. All right, so when society then exchanges the truth of God, all that that society is left with are lies. And you can read Romans 1 sometime. You've read it perhaps several times already, but if you go back through Romans 1, you look at sort of just the progression or the digression, I should say, of society once it's rejected the truth all that's left to fill the vacuum once society has rejected the truth it's the lies of satan and so this exalted idea of design this is something that's been totally lost on today's culture so that now you and i represent a worldview minority in today's post-christian post-truth culture that's nothing that we should be upset about. That's nothing we should, you know, be kicking and screaming about and that kind of thing because that's pretty much been the case as far as God's people is concerned in, in the world. But that doesn't mean that God isn't bringing everything according to his own intended purpose because we know that he is. And yet, we've got responsibility here in this matter to speak into these very issues where there's so much confusion in our culture. Martin Luther said something um, I thought was interesting. He said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. He says, where the battle rages... There the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides its mere flight and disgrace if, if he flinches at that one point. <laughs> Let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying you look at where society is, and you look at where Satan is really unleashing the most havoc. And if we don't speak with clear, I mean with gospel clarity into that, confusion and into those lies as the people of God, then we're not living up to the purpose for which God has left us here in society as the church to begin with. We're to speak the truth. We're to preach the truth. We're to hold each other accountable in the context of the family of faith to the truth. We can't make people that don't believe the truth believe the truth, but now we can still speak the truth, share the truth, and we can trust that God is going to honor his word. And so some of the issues then that we're going to speak to over the next several Wednesday nights will include, obviously, gender and sexuality. Um, you know, issues concerning transgenderism, that kind of thing. Complementary roles assigned to men and women. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Uh, issues related to the sanctity of human life, which is an issue that the church must constantly you know, speak to, especially in a culture where death is often celebrated. Issues concerning race, racial issues, because let me tell you, this understanding of what it means to be made into the image of God, that understanding is absolutely foundational for us to treat one another with dignity and respect in terms of even racial you know, differences. And then the, the ethics of artifi uh, artificial intelligence. I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about that at all. Okay, I don't know a whole lot about all this other stuff either, Just, but I will say this, there's some good stuff that's being put out in terms of here's how you can help you as a pastor, help your people think through some of these issues 
related to artificial intelligence. I have fielded several questions over the past little while about, you know, Pastor, what do you think about all this AI stuff? You know, yeah, I'm, I'm still amazed with Siri on my, my laptop here. Don't know the first thing about chat GPT and all of the other stuff associated with AI. But I do believe that there are ethical dimensions that we do need to consider. And so, um, with that being said, again, considering this passage of Scripture that we've read from Genesis 1, there's a lot we could say about it, but you know that one word that we see repeated at least three times in two verses, it's that word image, isn't it? Where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he creates him. Male and female, he created them. So no less than three times, it's interesting, you see that God is described as us there in plural terms, which here you see this, I believe it's a picture of the Trinitarian nature of God. Right there, even in the earliest verses of, of Scripture, here you have this clue that, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are at work in creation from the very beginning, man and woman are created in his image, in his own image, in the image of God. And so that's significant because this sets humanity apart literally from everything else in creation leading up to this. Which means that, that people were, were, were different than the fish, were different than the animals, were different than the birds, were different than the livestock on earth and every creeping thing that's described in Genesis 1, none of these other creatures are said to be made in God's image. Only you and me are said to be created in the image of God. And so we're, we're, we're not just distinct from everything else. What that means is that we've been given dominion over the created order. Whereby God has entrusted it to us as his vice regents or stewards. That's the language here. In, in the Genesis story, that word dominion translates a Hebrew word, radal. It means to, uh, to rule. So that God has placed man and woman on earth with this capacity and this responsibility to rule and exercise dominion on behalf of God. And then you get to verse 28, and God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's saying, make babies and lots of them. Fill the earth with more image bearers, have dominion over everything. And then he lists all of those things in creation God says that I've given to you. Let us make man in our image. The word man there, it's not just referring to male, but it's man in the sense of mankind or humanity. It translates the Hebrew word Adam or Adam as he's given his proper name once he's made by God, but, but, but humanity here, uniquely made in God's image to have dominion over everything on earth. And so God is saying here, I want my image to be seen all throughout the earth. And this, God says, is very, very good. All right, so coming back to that original question, what does it mean to be a human being? All right, so in view of what we've just read, in view of the biblical understanding, we can answer the question in this particular way, and I've given you a working definition right there. A human being is a man or a woman personally made by God in the image of God, all for the glory of God. And so someone says, well, what does the Bible say that it means to be a human? You, you can say a human being is a man or a woman. We would say male or female, personally made by God, in the image of God, all for the glory of God. Now, that's a full definition. But what I want to do, and I don't have the time to do it all tonight, but I want to break that definition down into four parts, each of which are of equal importance. And what I want you to see is how each of these uh, parts really matter for our present discussion. All right, so the first part of that definition then, a human being is distinctively created man or woman. Now that's a shocking statement to many in today's culture. To us, it might sound like the most simplistic, widely assumed statement that you've ever heard. 
Uh, duh, is what you would say. I mean, a human being is distinctively created, man or a woman. I was thinking we were just sort of to teleport out of here maybe and go back 10 years, you know, our, 10 years ago, if we were to come into the future and you were to walk into the fellowship hall and you were to see that point on that slide, I wonder what you would think before so much of this conversation went mainstream in society today. If you come in through those back doors and you see the pastor up here and you see the definite, you, a human being is distinctively created man or a woman, you might be wondering, well, man, that's just elementary stuff, right? But again, right here is where the enemy has introduced so much confusion into the minds of people, you know, in the world today. And so, uh, you know, there are men and there are women. Thousands of years in our history, we've, we've all widely, uh, widely agreed that humanity is gendered and that human beings exist in that male-female binary. It was this Judeo-Christian understanding of humanity that really became foundational for Western civilization. And then in the wake of the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s, you know, such basic biological facts are now up to radical redefinition by secular culture. And so, again, you look at that and scholarship may try to refute it. Skeptics may come along and they may try to challenge that. But Scripture remains the same. What God has made cannot be unmade. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's what verse 27 says there clearly. All right, so notice that both man and woman are described as being made in the divine image. Even though they have different roles as part of the divine plan, God has designed humanity in this specific way. And so he creates gender and sexuality, and this is something that God says is very, very good. And so you think, well, why did he do it this way? Why, why is it, you know, that God creates man and woman, and this is something that he says is very good? What does the Bible really teach here? Well, think about this. As those who bear the image of God, men and women possess equal dignity before God and each other. As those who are made in the image of God, both men and women possess equal dignity before God and each other. That's the Judeo-Christian understanding of the image of God. Now, I don't think I have to work too hard to convince you that that's revolutionary as far as most cultures of the world is concerned. Where there have been vast discrepancies and, and mistreatment on the part of perhaps males who have been domineering over their female counterparts. But according to the Genesis design, as those who bear the image of God, both men and women possess equal dignity before God and each other. So from the very beginning of the Bible, God is speaking directly against any kind of male or female superiority or dominance which means it's morally wrong in any culture or society, any relationship where the man is thought to be better than the woman or the woman is thought to be better than the man because what's wrong in any culture, any relationship where, where, where either man or woman is treated as inferior, that goes against this very design of what it means to be made in the image of God. You say, well, obviously that's not been the ideal that's been practiced throughout so much of society. Why is it? I'll tell you why. Because Genesis 3 happens. <laughs> and the curse of sin happens. And sin takes its toll out on our individual lives and our relationships. And so there's been that chaotic breakdown, even at this most basic level. But that still doesn't change the fact that this is God's design. Now, something else to consider, as those who bear the image of God, men and women are uniquely distinguished by God in relationship to each other. God doesn't create you know, gender-neutral people. You get into chapter 2, where you see you know, the full account of how God creates man and how God creates woman, creates man from the dust of the earth and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. 
He says it's not good that the man be alone. That's the one thing of the created design that God says is not good. So he creates woman from the man, from Adam's side. He takes a rib and forms and fashions Eve. And I, I like what one person said. You know, he, he, he takes Eve from Adam's side, not from his feet, for her to be trampled upon, or not from his head, for her to rule over him, but from his side, which shows that they are equal, and yet their differences. They're distinguished by God in relationship to one another. And so this is something that's contrary to all of those common ideas that we now hear in our culture today. <clears throat> because gender identity, this is not something that's chosen by people. We're living in a society now that says, well, gender is simply a social construct. And, and, and gender is whatever you personally choose. And so today's understanding would say gender is achieved. But the biblical understanding says no, gender is something that is received. In terms of who you are as a unique creature made in the image of God. So we've got a received identity, not simply one that's achieved. Now again, I mentioned Christopher Yen a moment ago in his book, Holy Sexuality. He's written honestly you know, about this in his own life, and he lands clearly where the Bible lands. But he's a professor at um, Moody Bible Institute, and, and in 2019, he wrote an article for Desiring God. And listen to this. Here's what he said. <clears throat> being created in the image of God and being male or female are essential to being human. And so sex, that is male and female, this is not simply biological or genetic, just as being human is not simply biological or genetic, sex is first and foremost a spiritual and ontological reality. That's just a word that, that has to do with basic reality. But it's reality created by God. Being male or female cannot be changed by human hands. Sex is a category of God's handiwork, His original and everlasting design. And then he continues, you know, speaking specifically about transgenderism and what's at stake in those conversations. Uh, he says that transgenderism is not exclusively a battle for what's male and female. But rather it's a battle for what's true and real. So that Christians cannot simply nod and smile politely in the face of damaging lies. Now, I'm just going to kind of take a time out here and, and say, my time's already gone, figure that. Which is why for us as Christian men and women, this, this debate, and you know, there are people on both sides of this issue, say you have someone in your family, you have a, a grandchild, or there's an extended family member who has had gender reassignment surgery and has gone through that whole transition. Say they were born biological male and now they so choose to want to identify as female and insist upon you referring to them with female pronouns. And I've had people ask the question, Pastor, what should I do? My grandchild, you know, my children are raising my grandchild along this, you know, this, this gender ideology. What do I do? Should I refer to what I know as my grandson, as my granddaughter? And, and should I accommodate and use those female pronouns? Now, I want to say this with all due respect. You cannot participate in their delusion, in their lie. Amen. Because for me to participate in, 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 in it would be affirming that lie. And it would be, I believe, a sin against God himself and God's revealed truth. And I cannot, will not do that. Now, I will refer to you as your, with your preferred name. But as far as, you know, rejecting what I know to be truth, revealed truth, factual, biological, spiritual, what I know to be the truth of God, for me to go against that would be to sin against the God who has made me in his image. And I choose not to do that. I love you, but I love him more. And so, folks, you see where these are the battle lines that are kind of being drawn in today's culture. Now, that doesn't make this any easier because this is a messy subject. It is a touchy subject, and it's something that some of you, perhaps, you're going to be dealing with 
you know, the holidays are coming up and you're going to be seeing folks perhaps that you don't normally see throughout the year. And how do you have those conversations if those conversations come up? I will say this, we don't have to be ugly. And we don't have to be mean-spirited. And we don't have to be unkind. Because I will say this, regardless how a person chooses to live their life, I know that that person is someone who has been created uniquely in the image of God, which means that they are worthy of my respect and my love. And so listen to this. I can affirm them as a person without having to approve how they so choose to live their life. Now, they may not understand that. Because in, in, in a culture, in a world where, where, where a person, is, their identity is so wrapped up now in their sexuality and that kind of thing, for you to refuse to approve the way that they live their life they interpret that as being a rejection of them as a person. But let me tell you something. That is not their personhood. God, they don't understand that, but I'm praying the Holy Spirit of God would open their eyes to this wonderful truth that they've been uniquely made in the image of God and that they're only going to find their true sense of identity and a relationship with that God through faith in His own Son who alone can provide them with the life that they so desperately long for. And someone says, well, why are people gravitating to these particular types of movements to begin with? Because, listen, the enemy always promises life apart from God's design, though. Apart from the only path that leads to life, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so, you know, I can say with 100% confidence... That God loves people, even people who are steeped in sinful ideologies, even people who would militate against the God who sent his son to die for their sin, they are loved by God. And so when you understand that, you can then understand that people in the culture, they're not our enemy. They've been blinded by, their eyes have been blinded by the enemy. And so that frees us up to love people. And to share the love of God with people. We don't compromise truth. You know, we don't, we don't change what we know to be theological truth in terms of God's design. But the bottom line is we can love people. Well, my time is gone. So I told you not to worry about the outline because I knew I wouldn't finish it. We'll pick right back up here where we left off last week. And so that second point, we'll leave you with this tonight. A human being has been distinctly created, man or a woman, but a human being is personally created by God. And for us to understand what it means to be human, listen, we can't understand what it means to be human apart from this basic understanding that we've been created by God and He is the Creator before whom we bow. Would you stand with me tonight as we do pray? And I want to pray specifically for you in some ways tonight that maybe the Lord will give you wisdom and give us a compassionate witness, an uncompromising witness, but a compassionate witness. And, you know, let's pray for people and and, and pray for the church today. And, you know, you see where even denominations, you know, these battle lines have been drawn and there are entire denominations that are splitting over these issues. And so again, if there's ever a time where we as the people of God need to know why we believe and why we believe it, what we believe and why we believe it, that time is now. Every head bowed and every eye closed. You know, maybe, maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're concerned. You're fearful maybe even perhaps worried you know, about something in your life or in the life of someone you love. But just, just let the truth of God's word wash over you tonight and bring you great joy and comfort to know that you've been uniquely created in the image of God. You say, Pastor, what does that even mean? We didn't even really get into that tonight, but we will. But let me tell you, here's what it means. God's created you to have a relationship with himself. 
And so being made in the image of God has to do with this issue of relationship, being his ambassador, representing him throughout the creation, exercising dominion over that creation. But you know, sin has affected all of that. But here's, here's why Jesus came, so that I can have a relationship with God and be saved and be redeemed. And so, Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. And in these confusing days that we live in, Lord, there are hot-button, hot-topic issues that people are fighting about and arguing about, and there's a lot of confusion. And sometimes, Lord, when it comes to the church, as far as these issues are concerned, Lord, we're guilty of expressing a lot more heat than light. And, and Lord, we've said things that have been hurtful, and, and, and mean-spirited. Lord, we don't ever want that to be the case in terms of our witness. Lord, we want to be ambassadors for Christ. We want to speak the truth in love. God, I pray you help us as your people to think through these issues and to be so confident, Lord, in the truth of your word and what you've revealed about humanity. And even though the evil one would rage against that and sell mankind a bill of goods, Lord, what God has made cannot be unmade. Amen. And we rejoice in that truth. And, and Lord, we look forward to that day where there is indeed a new heavens and a new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. And sin will be no more. And terror attacks will be no more. And the beheadings of babies will be no more. And no more war. And no more abortion. And no more murder and rape. But Lord, you'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that's the promise of life that you give to those who trust in your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we look to you in faith. Give us wisdom in these days. God, we thank you for our time together tonight. Be with us as we go home and as we live our lives. God, as we have opportunities to share Christ, may we seize those opportunities in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. amen. God bless each of you. Hope you have a wonderful week.